G'day, it's Parky here with the Cancel Sale Watch podcast. Today, part one of First No, after Luke calls it quits early on a solo circuit and says no to continuing. Sometimes this is the safest thing for a pilot to do, but how do you know when it's the right time to say no? It's not always a binary go, no-go decision because aviation can be a nuanced and complicated endeavour. Sure, sometimes it's easy to say no, but other times it's really difficult. We talk through Luke's first grounding and share a bunch of our own as we try to figure out together when no is really no and when yes should have been no. Plus, we bring back Aeronaut Pilatra de Rosia for our retro salute and his first ever grounding, and therefore probably one of the first groundings ever. P.S. We've split this episode into two parts as we ended up chatting for more than a bite-sized podcast. So now you get two bites. Thanks for joining us. What's a Cancel Sale Watch podcast all about? Well, it's where three pilots from three different generations, 22 years apart, gather every two weeks to pursue the spirit of flight. Sam's our baby boomer pilot who first flew in the early 70s and safely logged five decades worth of military, police, rescue and instructional time. Parky, that's me, is our Gen X pilot and I began flying in the early 90s. I've got a passion for safety management along with 20 years of military, rescue and instructional time. And of course... There's our new Gen Y pilot in training, Luke, who just kicked off his flying career by signing up for pilot training at a local flight school. Three different generations of pilots with three very different generational perspectives talk through the joys and challenges of flight as Luke progresses through pilot training and beyond. From the first spark of aviation curiosity to going solo and onwards to a professional career, Sam, Parky and Luke passionately pursue the spirit of flight within the now highly technical experience of modern day aviation. As you listen, you'll get a couch-side, behind-the-scenes perspective into the training, the knowledge and the attitude it takes for a pilot to finish a flight and radio in to air traffic control, cancel Sailwatch. Hope you enjoy our conversation, and if you reckon it's worth it, please rate and comment. Also, why not visit the cancelsailwatch.com website for additional content such as pictures, memorabilia, safety articles to help you cancel Sailwatch. And now, on with today's conversation. G'day guys, uh, so what I want to do is just start off with our retro account, bringing back Palatra de Rosia, and I'll link in the show notes to Aeronauts and Their Balloons, which is a great little book you can get on Kindle. I'm just going to read a couple of excerpts from it here to tie into our uh, own first no, or first grounding account. So I'll just read a little bit about Palatra de Rosia and just invite our listeners to go back to earlier episodes, I think one and two, where we talk about Palatra de Rosia and the first ever balloon flight back in 1783. It's now 1784 and uh, by this time they're getting a little bit more used to flying balloons. Palatra de Rosia and Joseph Montgolfier, who was the paper maker actually that was involved and helping build these balloons were among six passengers on a second flight on January 19, 1784. Their air inside the balloon was heated by fire, burning inside an iron stove and was fed with trusses of straw that had been soaked with brandy. The balloon rose majestically to a height of about 3,000 feet, but descended again after a lapse of about a quarter of an hour from the time of starting in consequence of a rent in the upper part. Weather then prevented a further attempt, but conditions approved over the following few days. But by this time, the cold, snow and rain had already damaged the balloon rather severely. Two aeronauts had some serious concerns about 
attempting another ascent, but they didn't want to go through the embarrassment of another failed attempt. So in front of many people who are anxious to see a balloon launch, they began their second attempt. The weather-related damage, however, combined with a fire that was too hot, caused the balloon to split into several places, and to make a bad situation even worse, it collapsed within a few seconds over the grill and caught fire. People brought in nearby water pumps to put out the fire, but the damage was already too great for the men to ascend that day. A loud groan and other sounds of derision and disappointment passed through the large crowd, who quickly blamed the aeronauts for their lack of planning and preparedness. An announcement was made that a second attempt would occur as soon as the weather improved. The skies had cleared enough on, on Sunday, January 18th, that the two men announced they would make their ascension the following day. Montgolfier and DeRosier may have had serious doubts to whether it was such a good idea to launch and ascend with the hastily repaired balloons, but any doubts didn't stop them from putting on their more formal attire and preparing the balloon for launch. A mortar was discharged at precisely 11.45am to signal that the aeronauts were beginning to inflate the balloon. Pilatra de Rosia and Montgolfier kept the fire used for the inflation to a reasonable level so as not to repeat the problems from the two days earlier. The balloon was properly inflated within 30 minutes and everything looked promising for a successful flight. At 1pm they ordered the men on the ground to cut the support ropes. However, just as the balloon began to rise from the ground, a young man named Fontaine pushed his way through the crowd and managed to jump into the car. But this was only the start of their troubles. His weight caused the balloon to shake violently and dramatically slowed its ascent. The situation was even worse because the two support ropes were still attached to the balloon, which wasn't unusual during a balloon launch, but the added weight and the struggle made the entire balloon and car tip dangerously to one side. The hot air inside the balloon made the, made the balloon itself want to rise, but the two ropes kept it from doing so. The balloon was pretty much out of control now and still only a few yards above the ground. It struck the heads of several onlookers who unfortunately weren't fast enough to move out of the way as panic spread through the people closest to the unfolding drama. A rope became entangled on a pole and the basket struck the side of the enclosure, knocking part of it to the ground. The panic then turned into a stampede of people running in every direction that somehow cut or at least removed the tethered ropes. The sudden release threw off the centre of gravity of the balloon and a large fissure split the upper half of the balloon. It was by then too late to do anything but ascend, so the aeronauts built up the fire as best they could until the balloon slowly rose to 3,000 feet and became more stable. Despite all the problems and the near right, they still find, found time to wave their handkerchiefs to the crowd below them. They also used a speaking tube, similar to a megaphone today, to relay their appreciation until they were too far away from the enthusiastic and loud crowd to be heard. The balloon now began to descend, either from the earlier weather damage or some other reason. Those on the ground noticed that the balloon was descending and they initially thought it was simply some sort of controlled manoeuvre until they saw the aeronauts frantically feeding the flames in an attempt to regain altitude, but this just wasn't going to happen. Several people from the crowd, most fearing the worst, rushed to the area where they believed the balloon would crash. Their fears seemed to be correct because they noticed what was left of the balloon was in flames. They undoubtedly had thoughts that the passengers had either burnt to death or crushed by the fall or both or if they had somehow survived, they would be suffering from an array of injuries. As people approached the crash sites, they could hear shouts coming from the aeronauts that they survived the accident. The news quickly passed through the area that the aeronauts and the passengers not only were alive, but managed to escape just with minor bruises. So yeah, we brought back uh, DeRosia for our retro salute, and I thought it'd be pretty good to bring him back from one of our earlier episodes. He's a rich resource that's relatively untapped in terms of our discussions about pursuing the spirit of flight and safeness and human factors and all the rest of it and i must admit i was well i had more than a smile on my face as i was reading about them <laughs> trying to take off with the crowd watching and the crowd getting exasperated and the balloon splitting and uh, straw soaked with brandy and etc etc what were your thoughts guys on derosia 
Derosia's <laughs> second saga that I've brought out. I thought it was pretty funny because I was just kind of reading through and it paints this like awesome picture of like a drama of all these things going wrong and then there's like a sentence in there it's like and this was only happening a few feet off the ground <laughs> it's like people were getting hit in the head with the basket <laughs> like I know. what kind of accident is this I know. can you imagine that like a major event today with a balloon yeah. like, copping people in the head people like fleeing the area yeah, yeah. yeah and just, the smell and just, and just when they thought it, it got it all all together then that other idiot decides he's going to jump on and do it. <laughs> yeah well yeah it's like uh, upsetting then, the apple cart yeah well I wonder if he sampled the rum that they were using yeah. or something he's like yeah. hey this is a pretty good idea I want to yeah. go for a fly as well and yeah. yeah I mean it's just a it's a different world really I mean it's over in another continent it's a couple of hundred years ago but interestingly though I think the theme of being pressured to fly yeah. is just as real now as yeah. it was then mm-hmm. um, so that's what we wanted to talk today about was just first kind of grounding that you had Luke uh, in the sense that mm. you've had to say no uh, to a particular flight or at least you cut it short did you want to yeah. tell us a bit about that it was in the afternoon after work so I'd worked all day and then I got to the flight school mm. and sat a uh, exam for going over to the solo or uh, the training area solo yep. as well so um, and actually all this happened in hindsight so um, at the time I felt all good and, and, all and a little plug for you you actually went solo fairly early no oh, yeah. hours wise so <laughs> yeah. well done thank you very much so this is and i'm saying all this in hindsight yeah because uh, at the time i felt uh i felt fine or i didn't really feel the effects of fatigue or at least i didn't kind of uh acknowledge it mm. um and so i went uh for a circuit with my instructor and yeah. he said that i was all good and i think i was at that stage flying pretty well uh and then i started doing my solo circuits and I just remember starting to get get behind on just some of the different checks or at least yeah. not staying ahead like yeah. it's the whole cliche part should never fly anywhere they haven't thought of 10 minutes ago kind yeah, of thing yeah. and it was it was just a case of that as mm-hmm. I was taking off I wouldn't uh, be thinking oh, okay well I've got to do my turn at 500 feet I'd kind of blow through 500 feet yeah. and go oh we are supposed to turn there and yeah. everything like that. So I just felt myself getting a bit behind yeah. um, and just figured, you know. And then um, some other aircraft came into the circuit, which took you a bit by surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was my second second kind of solo circuit. So um, even just one or two aircraft trying to keep the position in where they're kind of entering and, and flying around. And I think at least one of them was a King Air. So I was going much quicker than I was. And yeah. I was just kind of, especially when he kind of like announced it and I was on early downwind. I'm like, yeah. Oh, I'm going to get the whole way down, downwind yeah, and yeah. then base and then final. Yeah. And this guy's just... <laughs> so just describe a bit what you're feeling in that moment. It wasn't confusion or anything. It was yeah. just kind of like blankness. <laughs> or, or, or like, I was just drawing a blank as to... Yeah. It wasn't kind of any feeling of stress or anxiety or anything like that. I just realized yeah. that I wasn't thinking hard enough about what I was doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think it's probably a classic case of being task saturated as well. Like yeah. you're still relatively new in your yeah, career. You're yeah. by yourself. I mean, it's what, second time you've been solo. Yeah. And then there's a few kind of variables chucked in, like yeah. the other aircraft, and your mind's actually having to process all those things. It's mm-hmm. now I have to make an extra radio call that I haven't made before. Yeah. And your mental capacity, you know, we often use the idea of, or a metaphor of, you know, the water level rising, getting up to the eyeballs and then going above. And I think it's a good metaphor because that's what happens with, you know, workload. And later on, as you get more experience, your capacity increases. So mm-hmm. I said, yeah, I can make that call. Yeah. I can uh, do my before landing checks now. I can do this, I can do that. But mm-hmm. But so then you decided to just cut it short? Yeah, well, at the point where I realized that I just wasn't thinking ahead yeah. and that I just couldn't 
yeah. pieced together all the bits. I was like, yep, there's no reason for me yeah. to be up here today. So yeah. I just made the next one a full stop and uh, and kind of kept it there. And it was it was pretty eye-opening, to be honest, because mm. up until that point, you know, I've been smashing through my lessons mm. and probably had a bit of pride about the whole, oh, yeah, I went solo after nine hours mm. kind of thing. This is going to be great. And then the very next yeah. lesson, I'm like struggling to uh, do all my checks and stuff. And it was just, it was, yeah, pretty eye-opening as to how yeah. quickly, like if, yeah. if you're not you know, thinking about it or anything like that, it can just yeah. affect you straight away. And mm. yeah, so it was, a, it was a good lesson. I, it was probably one of the, I think it's the good coolest to be, lessons so far, really. Yeah, <laughs> and I think it's good to have highs and lows. I think it's good to be humbled mm. in a way because your capacity will improve mm. in the future, increase, but so will the demands that are put upon you, yeah. which is probably a good segue to Sam because uh, you've obviously been flying for a whole bunch of decades mm. and you've no doubt had to say no before or cut short sorties and felt the pressure of that mm. what's the earliest first grounding you can remember i'm cutting out the um the training side because a lot of the uh, weather related mm. we can't go flying today because it's yeah lousy that and was, you're generally supported in that in a well that, that was the that was the instructor who made those yeah. decisions but yeah. after i was qualified um my first check flight with the squadron qfi was in 1976 this guy was really getting stuck into me before he even went flying got mm. a real flogging for mm. you know, an hour or so before he went flying so he we went out to the aircraft and i arced this thing up and he's into me and i was just kind of fed up to my my ears and this i said right that's it shut mm. it down mm. <laughs> You said that, did you? Yep. I said, oh, wow. I'm not flying with you. Oh, how did that go down? He, he was a, I think he was a captain at the time. Might, yeah. have been, might have even been a major. I won't say who it was. Yeah, so I, I just and said, right, that's it. I'm not flying with you. Yeah. Shut it down. He, he got out and stormed out. So I kind of tied this thing down and signed it off and kind of slumped back with my tail between my legs into the crew room. And yeah. Of course, the guys were in there. They said, what happened to you? And so I told them and they all started laughing and <laughs> rolling around the place and it, as it turned out I was the last one in the squadron who'd refused to fly with this, this oh, dude wow. who was sub- subsequently moved out of there and became a instructor yeah. over in the school. It's good to hear that though Sam because like back, I must admit back in the 70s I've always had this impression that you know real steep cockpit gradients mm. and you just did what the instructor told you and you had yeah. to put up with it but the fact yeah. that you could speak out in what was clearly a, a very negative situation yeah. and be supported is really good. Yeah, well, well, I thought, well, that's the end of my flying career. An unusual situation in those days. Yeah, and, it is. And I've yeah, never had it happen subsequently to that. Yeah, because I've heard some horror stories from back in the day where mm. you just you you were the you know the student or the bog rat mm. pilot. You just did what you were told, and mm. even if it was unreasonable, you did mm. what you were told. So, oh, people getting belted in the side of the head while they're flying, and yeah, it's pretty horrible. Yeah, yeah I've heard. Stuff no, I've like never that. had that personally. Yeah, wow. My first grounding, that as far as I can recall, when I was sort of the probably more an aircraft captain and having to say no was obviously uh, at 171 Squadron as an operational pilot. And really, most of the time, that was sort of just fairly straightforward. Oftentimes, it was fairly binary uh, where, you know, if the weather's really bad and there's a thunderstorm over the top, it doesn't take too much convincing Mm -hmm. other pilots or even non-pilots that it's not a good idea to go flying. Mm -hmm. Uh, But on this one particular day, we were trying to deploy up north and we'd actually been trying all week, and it was just one of those really bad weather weeks where there was uh, low cloud, rain the whole time. And uh, the OC at the time was obviously getting a lot of pressure on him to push the squadron forward up into the exercise area, and we just couldn't take off. And so, you know, we get towards day three or day four of having to cancel and, you know, getting the aircraft ready and then saying no. And he just had a gut for me. He said, no matter what happens tomorrow, we are taking off. 
Um, so I was like, oh, okay. So anyway, the next day, the weather was bad again and, you know, you kind of feel the pressure of it, but it's like, hey, I'm not taking off in this. This is dangerous and um, particularly in those machines back then, they're not stabilised like they are today, like the Blackhawk or the AW139 or whatever. They're just not stabilised there. All we had was one little NDB, which is sort of World War II era technology, and there was thunderstorms about the place. And it might have seemed like there was a lot of pressure to get to the exercise area, but there would have been a lot more pressure if one of us had crashed or done something dangerous. So that was probably the first time um, I had to say no sam what would you say the most common reason is that you've had to say no to a flight definitely weather second one and this is percentage wise probably less than five percent is if i had a a cold or a flu and with blocked ears yeah right especially with doing aerobatics when you're getting a fairly rapid change in pressure lastly and not very often an aircraft unserviceability which will come up a bit later as something during the course of a yeah. Of a flight. So like so weather and then assessing your own physiological state, whether yes. you're healthy to fly. Yes. Which I must admit is not always binary because sometimes you have a minor cold, major cold. It's like um, I know of one guy in the squadron who thought he had a minor cold, went flying, burst his eardrum and then mm. was out for six weeks. So it can mm. be hard to tell sometimes. Mm. Was that pretty much what you expected, Luke? I think even just in my flight training so far, aircraft yeah. on serviceability and weather are the yeah. two that have yeah. um, at least been questioned. Yeah, and I think it's just a, a case of kind of learning what the one, the legal limits are, but also what my personal limits yeah. are because it's not something I've really got too much experience with. So I know, you know, if it's legally not okay to fly, then you just don't go flying. But yeah. usually your own personal minimums will kind of beat you to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, you, yeah. if you know those limits. Well, I certainly agree with Sam with weather, aircraft unserviceability, and obviously my own health. But oftentimes, again, it's not binary, like particularly when I was flying for care flight, the hardest thing in Toowoomba is that it could be a night like tonight where it appears to be sky clear and the weather forecast showing that it's sky clear all night and then an hour later, it's just all fog. And if there's going to be a cloud in Queensland, then it'll be on the range over Toowoomba for mm. some reason, you know. And so what tends to happen with what I call your acceptability threshold, it changes. So say you're, you've had to say no to a number of jobs and then a couple of hours later you go out and you look outside and it's twinkling stars and everything's clear, you, you go, oh, didn't get it exactly right so your acceptability threshold probably goes down a little bit mm-hmm. and then another time you accept a flight and before you know it you're in the gloop and your alternates are rapidly becoming unavailable mm-hmm. and the patient in the back isn't that sick anyway and you're just thinking what am i doing here <laughs> then again your acceptability threshold changes in fact i remember just being up in rockhampton with care flight supporting the army and over and over again on this one particular week the weather again was just rubbish and so you know the army guys were tending to ask over and over and over again can we get airborne can we get airborne and i just had to keep saying no and then eventually i said yes when i probably shouldn't have uh the weather hadn't really changed but just that ongoing pressure and before i knew mm. it here i was with a patient that wasn't that sick and having to think about putting the machine down in the middle of a paddock somewhere on our mm. way back to rockhampton mm. and again your acceptability threshold changes so I think it's good to just to be, like I said, to listen to the humbling experiences and learn from that and and also to talk to other people because what I found is other people have different acceptability thresholds as well and that may well be based on their experience or it may just be based on their personality. Um, I like to use the uh, metaphor of safety power available versus safety power required. So you would have done basic aerodynamics, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds very similar to power required and power available for climbing and stuff like that. No, it is. And um, what I'll do in the show notes, I'll link to the article I wrote about this because I found it to be a really helpful metaphor because oftentimes we go, oh, 
is it safe to fly? No. Well, mm. the trouble is, is that that's a binary uh, answer to a non-binary question. The better mm. question is how safe is it to fly tonight? Because oftentimes uh, there's uh, safety is thick, like it has a margin and we can get, we can erode our margins over time, uh, as we've seen on the human factors course, yeah, we yeah. talked about this. And so what I do is I relate it to aerodynamic power available versus aerodynamic power required. We know that if there isn't enough power or, you know, if the power available is less than the power required, the aircraft essentially will start to fall out of the sky mm. or, you know, in a helicopter, um, the rotor will droop and so forth. So we know we don't want to be in that situation. So what I try to think of is on a night like tonight, although there is a front coming through, later on it could be a high safety power required scenario. Safety power means... You know, bad weather, I could be you know, flying with an inexperienced crew and in an aircraft that's not that capable, high safety power demand. And then if I'm now feeling sick, now it's uh, not as much safety power required, or if I'm feeling fatigued because it's 3 a.m. in the morning mm. and it's my second job, uh, again, not as much safety power mm. available. So looking at that as a margin can often help me answer whether or not I should be going tonight. Uh, and it sort of takes into account... Uh, a number of different factors, including your crew. I don't know if you've heard that before, Sam. It's just something I've started talking about with the lads when I do the human factors mm. training, and I've found it to be pretty helpful. Mm. Um, I haven't heard it before. One <laughs> I, I use is uh, risk versus gain. Yeah, that's Which yeah. is a long, kind is, of simplistic yeah. way of... Yeah, yeah well, I like simple one because the risk versus gain as well, it looks at um, you know what the hazards might be in a more sort of holistic way rather than just going, oh, no, that's hazardous. It's like, okay, but what's the return mm. here? Because sometimes you might accept a lesser safety margin. It's not necessarily unsafe, but a lesser safety margin mm. because the return is so much more. Mm. Uh, you know, like 2011 floods, you'd probably accept lesser weather mm. uh, margins or lesser weather uh, criteria mm. because, you know, there are people being swept away by a flood or whatever. Mm. Whereas mm. on a night like tonight, it's all pretty routine and someone can probably put in an ambulance before they need to go on an aircraft. So mm. so what are the pressures that are often on a pilot to, to keep going? Uh, what are the pressures that sort of are brought to bear so that they don't say no? What do you reckon, Sam? Well, I'll divide this up again into two areas. In the military, I think that losing face is a, is a big thing. You like to be seen to be better than everybody else. These people might be able to do it, but I sure as hell can. So you, you put a lot of pressure on yourself to be able to, to do a job. And that, that would probably change as your experience goes on in both directions. So if you've scared yourself silly a couple of times, you're probably, and you're smart, yeah, yeah. you probably learn from that. I think the military, there's a definitely a, a can-do attitude. In the commercial side, you're hit with an entirely different set of circumstances because in the commercial, it's more money-driven. If you don't do the job, a lot of companies out, and this is talking back when I was yeah, yeah. in commercial, they're going to lose money and you're, you're sure as hell going to lose your job. And there's, there's uh, legendary stories of people uh, refusing to fly a, an unserviceable aircraft and then mm. coming back and saying, sorry, you're out of a job. Yeah. And they've done the right thing. Especially if you're like a newer pilot and you're trying to get on the next run yeah. in your professional ladder yeah. and you know that now you've lost that opportunity to get more turbine time or whatever, mm. like it's a lot of pressure then um, yeah. to not say no. Yeah. Mm. And I, I can't comment for people who are flying commercially now, but... I dare say there's still at least a yes. modicum up there. Yeah. A lot of it um, can be seen as, as personality-driven because if I was to say no, I might get an entirely different reaction from a chief pilot than Luke saying mm. no because we're different personalities and we might interact better with yeah. that other person. Who knows? You just never know which way that's mm. going to be taken by the, the person in charge. Yeah, that's a good point. I think yeah. personalities do get in yeah. the way sometimes and the way they interact. Yeah. Uh, well, I think oftentimes, you know, you want to do the right thing and be honest, but again, mm. personalities get involved. And mm. I think, 
you often talk about gravity in terms of our human proclivities and like gravity pulls you down uh, and so too in our own sort of human nature there's a particular force unless you impart energy to it it will always go that way naturally and one of the things i can feel it in myself when i see someone else has made a mistake aviation wise I immediately leap to judgment. like, mm. And so I've tried to coin this phrase of, hey, guys, if you see someone's made a mistake, do a couple of things. First, ask more questions because most times you'll find out that whatever you heard is highly embellished and mm. is missing their side. And the second thing is do the substitution mm. test. Put yourself there, same circumstances. You can go the whole way with this. Same circumstances, same skill level, same experience, same upbringing. And I'm pretty sure you'll find that you probably wouldn't have been that much different. Can I ask Luke a question? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you guys, yeah. oh, you wow. can ask questions. <laughs> what does proclivity mean? <laughs> tendency. Yeah, it's like a, a tendency, a, a natural tendency oh, sorry, to do I could, something. I couldn't help it. <laughs> you know what it means. You're just messing with me. <laughs> well, I yeah. think this is where managers can be careful too. Let's say they have a let's for want of a better term, have a stress level of two over the incident mm. and say it's the CEO or say it's the chief pilot. By the time it goes through the next manager down and then the next manager after that and then to the pilot themselves, I reckon it multiplies the it stress does, factor. Yeah. And oftentimes people go, no, no, we're not here to judge. But now why did you do such a stupid thing? <laughs> yeah. It's almost code words for, we're not here to judge, but that's exactly what we're yeah. about to do. And I think, and I don't yeah. think they mean it. It's hard. And, you know, we've got, I think we've got to have, I've always said, you know, soft, thick skin but soft hearts like we've got to be humble mm. but at the same time we should be able to take a bit of criticism as well and if mm. there is something we could have done better then we should be able to take it but unfortunately when you've made a mistake it, it is again human tendency <laughs> proclivity, proclivity is to go defensive and so the next question I wanted to ask and discuss is have there been times when we've gone when we should have said no uh, Sam Yes. <laughs> Many. Cool. Have you got like a particular story that... Um, yeah, I, I think that the um, in, in police and also in ambulance rescue work is weather combined with night, yeah. especially prior to NVGs, because yeah. I used to operate yeah. prior to NVGs in that situation. Mm. That, that gets downright scary, and it kind of goes back to what we were saying before. You, mm. you kind of go out with a big set of balls. Yeah. You say, I can do this, and they leap out of Sydney, and the cloud base is 500 feet, and there's thunderstorms forecast all over the place. Mm. And you get further north, you're kind of wending your way up the coast, and you're thinking, what am I doing here? And yeah. then, then suddenly you're kind of losing, you're getting lower and lower and mm. losing visibility. And mm. What kind of aircraft a, types would that have been? Like? That was in a jet ranger, this oh. particular <laughs> one. And wow. uh, suddenly you get a bolt of lightning coming out of the, out of the oh, uh, wow. saying, nah, th this is time to Put call it, it quits. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, this downright silly. I wrote an article recently on the, on the Gary Ticehurst crash at Lake Eyre, and that's a very similar situation there. We probably, mm. you know, pushed it a bit towards the end of the evening in a darkness, hadn't flown at night that much, wasn't that proficient, and unfortunately mm. had a control flight in the terrain, uh, fatal mm. accident, and very sad. I'll, I'll, I'll link to that one as well, I think, in the show notes, just so yeah. that people can have a read of that one. Another one, uh, weather combined with night, the classic was uh, when the aircraft, uh, the fixed-wing aircraft, mm. went into the Barrington Tops. The uh, coroner's report says that the search began at first light the next morning, mm. and I'm here to say that's an absolute rubbish, because... Yeah. I was flying with the police at the time, and myself and uh, my observer Dave Page mm. were uh, scrambled to that, mm. Mm. and uh, we were up there in the same conditions, yeah. uh, just prior to midnight, Yeah, and you had 60 knots of wind going coming from the west-southwest. Mm. What was that in again? What aircraft? 
Jed Ranger. <laughs> Sorry, uh, I should have stopped laughing. I just... Uh, but yeah, anyway. And so you've got a, a huge standing yeah. wave over the Barrington Tops. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of fires now. Our mm. task was to see if any of these fires were actually an aircraft mm. oh, burning, right. you see, but there's oh. a lot of forestry fires oh, on. Oh, wow. So we arrived over there, and I think the lowest safe altitude was something like 4,000 feet yeah. in that area over Mount Barrington itself. And uh, we're flying along, and uh, I'm only a little fella, but Dave Page is you know, well over six foot. Mm. And we got caught in a downdraft, maximum torque. In the, in the jet range it was 100% mm. so holding 100% we're just rocketing down the thing was wow. pretty much off yeah. the IVSI mm. just had it pointing into the last known wind and waiting to come out the other side mm. which we did but we're mm. way below our lower safe altitude yeah, when we wow. did and his head was being belted all around the around oh, the cockpit wow. yeah well I think there's a bit of a suck yeah. it and see kind of attitude to severe mm. turbulence nowadays even mm. where some pilots will go out and suck it and see but i think it's always a good reminder to remember that severe turbulence means uncontrolled flight at different times and mm. things being flung about the cockpit exactly like that mm. which isn't very pleasant at mm. all <clears throat> so we came out in the valley kind of on the southwestern side of mount barrington somewhere thankfully we had the night sun and uh, yeah that's um that's actually similar one i was going to share about when i probably should have said no and we'd actually just got back from a job and we were called to do a rescue up in binnabar and basically what had happened was a couple of bushwalkers had gone out and one of them had unfortunately fallen snapped an ankle and so we went into uh into the lodge there i think at binabara there's a little area that you can land and we picked up the ranger or was it o'reilly's i can't remember anyway one of them and so we picked up the ranger who knew where they were without us picking them up what it would have meant is a ground retrieval which would have taken hours and hours so anyway we found them pretty quick thanks to the help of the ranger but what we didn't realize was that on the coast the wind was relatively kind of calm but what had happened as the day had gone on a trough line was coming through. And so there was a really strong uh, westerly that was sort of being opposed by the sea breeze on the coast. But as soon as you went inland, the westerly was still really strong and increasing. And so as we came around to set up for the hoist, uh, we got over the top and I've always sort of tried to come in a little bit higher than I normally would. And I'm glad that I did because like this big invisible hand just came up and was like swatting the aircraft and uh, we were able to sort of go around and convert altitude to, to speed, but only just clear the trees. And I was literally at maximum torque and I didn't over torque, but I was tempted to because when you're going down and you're at maximum power, you kind of have a feeling that all of a sudden you're a passenger, not a pilot. And it's not a very good feeling when you're mm. the pilot. So then we went around, and I should have just said no then, but the paramedic was going, oh, let's give it another go. And I'm going, oh, that's not real good. And we'd already burned off a heap of fuel. So the power margin said that we should have been able to do it easily. So against my better judgment, <clears throat> I went around and did it again. And again, came to a bit of a, a hover, and it seemed to feel a bit better this time, and we are a bit higher. So we're trying to get above the demarcation line. But again, just as the hoist cable was about to deploy, a big invisible hand grabbing the aircraft and the 412 just was waffling and carrying on and with, you know, again, max power trying to get away. And, uh, again, I always remember, I don't know whether it's a theme or a pattern, but you read accident reports and oftentimes with helicopters, they try to get in uh, two or three times and it's the third time that they have an accident. So I just said, no, nah. <laughs> I'm not going, I'm not going. And uh, now we're stuck with this ranger because we couldn't get back into where we'd taken him from. So we had to take him back to the coast with us, <laughs> which he wasn't, wasn't too upset about. So Sam, what advice would you give to Luke on how to manage these types of pressures? Did you get that silence? <laughs> <laughs> no advice. I think you've got to be prepared to stand on your dig. It's courageous, isn't it? Like you require courage. You do require, requires a lot of courage. There's an old saying to yourself, be true. And it's really good to be able to talk about these things in retrospect, like we are now. Mm. I'm not kind of uh, six foot under or something like that. Yeah. Or, or sitting in a, 
in a cremator somewhere? Well, I want to honour you, Sam, because I think I was there the night. I think what had happened was in the old Huey, you had to enter emergency fuel and you would retard the throttle first. Mm. And for some reason, the throttle didn't get retarded and the thing over sped. And I remember I was waiting because I was about to go flying with you and mm. I heard this Iroquois going, whoa, 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 like going crazy. Yeah. I remember you coming in and I don't know if you realise this, but I actually learnt a lot from you because one, you said that's the first time you've ever had to, you know, would damage an aircraft essentially mm. where it then had to go and get some repair work. But secondly, just the way you handled it, the humility, you didn't try to cover it up, you didn't try to hide it, you didn't try to blame the student, which you could have, well, wasn't a student, it was a line pilot, you Mm. know what I mean? And I just thought owning your own limitations is Mm. such an important thing here because if you are, if your hubris or pride is trying to cash checks that your competency just doesn't have, that's Mm. the dangerous part Mm. of it. Mm. So if you are owning who you are and owning your mistakes and... You know what? The fact that you are here to talk about it, and that's mm. the worst thing that really happened to you. I think you do have a lot mm. of advice that's good. That's why I've got you on the show, so mm. it's good. But anyway, I just wanted to plug you there a bit, even though you paid out on me about using the word proclivity. I'll yeah. get you back later. <laughs> uh, I guess my only advice to you, mate, we've kind of talked about it before. It's just yeah. understanding your own limitations, but also understanding the demands of the the task like because it's easy and a lot of the research that I do now is looking at experienced pilots so as you get experience Mm. it's easy to just look at oh safety power available now my experience my competence is way up there Mm. but an experienced pilot can easily put themselves in a situation that they haven't seen before Mm. and I think it's the old adage of be aware of the pilot who who says he has a thousand hours when in fact he's just got one hour a thousand times over Mm. do you know what I mean Mm. and a lot of these accidents you see guys are either like experienced guys are either in new aircraft so now there's a higher safety power <clears throat> demand and they don't have as much safety power available because yeah they're good on other helicopters but they're still a little bit slow finding switches looking at the right place on this new helicopter mm. and then that can converges on a hard night and yeah. you know again there's other examples i could give life flight 8 is one uh, which i might link to in the show notes as well uh, Canadian S-76, very experienced pilot, new to the aircraft, control flight into terrain as he's trying to find the searchlight. Really, really sad. So I just think understanding your own limitations and understanding that that coupled with the demands of the task is oftentimes you're going to have to say no, and it is going to take courage. It's going to You're going to have to fight against gravity uh, in a sense to say no because you're going to want to please your chief pilot. You're going to want to please other people. It's just how we are. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Mm. They're not going to be pleased if you go out and either damage an aircraft or don't come back. So. Yeah. It also ties in with a recent conversation I had with some uh, people that are either retired or should be retired or about to become retired, and that is at the end of your career, you'll, you, you should know or understand when it's time to say no mm. I'm walking away from flying mm. because some people can't, just can't do that. Mm. What are you going to be remembered for? A huge career of success when you've kept on flying and you've gone out on a on a bad night mm. and your instrument rating is or your instrument uh, flying is not up to scratch mm. and you get caught out with zero mm. fuel and you're flying to the ground and you're dead and everybody on board's dead as well. Mm. What are you going to be remembered for? Yeah. And, that, and that's the sad thing. It's I mean even Captain Edward Smith. What does everyone remember Captain Edward Smith for? Mm. The Titanic. Mm. You know, he had a quite a successful career, although I found out the other day he had actually stacked a uh, merchant ship of prior, but he was exonerated. But yeah, he had quite a successful career, and yet the one thing he'll always be remembered for was mm. one of the greatest maritime disasters ever. Mm. Mm. I'm not saying that he should have probably given it up at that time, but you're always remembered for the last thing that you do. And I mm. think that's an important 
lesson to take away. Cancel Sarwatch is the last radio call a pilot makes when a flight has landed safely. The SAR in Sarwatch is an acronym for search and rescue. When a pilot radios Cancel Sarwatch, they let air traffic services know they have landed safely and the search and rescue watch can be cancelled. If the flight has been flown safely and professionally, then the Cancel Sarwatch call must surely epitomise the spirit of aviation because it will realistically represent the totality of a pilot's attitude, training, experience and wisdom in bringing the aircraft back home safely. Cancel Sarwatch, the call we hope every pilot makes, every flight, in the name of our podcast. Again, thanks for listening and don't forget to comment and rate us on iTunes and to visit us at www.cancelsarwatch.com where you'll find additional content to help you cancel Sarwatch. We can also be found on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hit your Cancel Sarwatch bookmark in about two weeks for our next episode.